Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The Guardian. Angela Rayner isn't like most of her colleagues in Westminster. So is she the kind of politician that can get Labour back to winning ways? I'm Rowena Mason, Deputy Political Editor of The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. It's not just our services and industries that austerity hurts, but our people too. Conference, the Tories have broken Britain, but we will rebuild it. Although tipped as the next Labour leader after Jeremy Corbyn, Rayner did not stand in the 2020 leadership election, supporting her flatmate Rebecca Long-Bailey instead, who came second to Keir Starmer. She did, however, get elected deputy leader in April 2020. Well, I'm bitterly disappointed in the results. Um, And, you know, I take full responsibility for the results. And I will take full responsibility for fixing things. In a particularly bizarre weekend following the local elections in May this year, rumours spread that Rayner would get the lion's share of the blame for a poor Labour performance. She was removed from her roles as Labour Party chair and national campaign coordinator, but she managed to get promoted to Shadow Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster and Shadow Secretary of State for the Future of Work. Her backstory is unusual and her future, according to many, is a promising one. So who is Angela Rayner? To figure that out, I spoke with Andrew Gwynne, Labour MP for Denton and Reddish, Stephen Bush, political editor of The New Statesman, and Guardian columnist Gabby Hinsliff. Shall we start with Andrew? As the politician on the panel who knows her best, how would you describe the woman behind the politician? Oh, I mean, Angela is a remarkable lady, really. You know, she's pulled herself up from a very difficult upbringing to be a leading member of a trade union. And of course, it's easy to forget that trade unions are very male-dominated environments, even now. And then to become member of parliament for the neighbouring constituency to mine, to very quickly become a shadow cabinet member, to deputy leader. And I think that shows the drive, the determination and the grit that is Angela Rayner. And Stephen, her backstory is pretty well known by now, but remind us, how has this informed her politics? Well, I think the biggest way that it's informed her politics is that particularly in the kind of very fraught sort of 16, 17 period of, of the Labour Party, right, where you had all of the shadow cabinet pretty much had resigned. 
we'd voted to leave the European Union. Theresa May was becoming leader and had that huge lead in the polls. And most people in the Labour Party could agree on only two things, that they didn't think almost everyone else in the Labour Party should be in the Labour Party and then uh, things were going very badly wrong. And then you had this person who kind of had um, kind of credibility on the party's left as someone who had come up to a very tough upbringing, had you know, huge credibility as a trade unionist, but someone who also talked about how short start on the various initiatives of the last Labour government had um, uh, changed and improved her life. And, and that, I think, is kind of integral to understanding why she became sort of a, a bit of a symbol of hope, particularly in that, yeah, that very difficult period they were going through at the time. And Gabby, she can be quite an electrifying public speaker. Do you recall any moments where she's made a particular impact or any interviews she's given? I think there was, I mean, the one that people will remember is that first one she gave to um, the party conference as shadow education secretary, where she just sort of stood up and said, you know, this is me. I was someone who everyone said, you'll never make anything of yourself. You know, she was pregnant at 16, dropped out of school and kind of look at me now and connected that through to education policy. Conference, people sometimes point to me as someone who had a difficult start in life. She can do it, they say, so why can't you? But actually, it's not true. My life shows the opposite. Any success that I've had is shared, shared by our movement and the Labour governments that provided the council house, the minimum wage, the welfare state and the Sure Start Centre that enabled me to achieve it. And you just saw somebody who could not only engage with an audience and just connect on a sort of visceral human level, which is much, much easier to describe than do, um, but also could, you know, draw a line between that and her politics. And I think that's what made people initially sort of sit up and think, well, and then almost every interview she's ever given, I mean, I interviewed her for The Guardian last year, but she's She's, it's an odd combination if she talks very, very easily and about things that some a lot of people find difficult to discuss. You know, she gives great copy. Uh, she talks in a very kind of emotive, interesting, she doesn't hold back. And yet there's something behind it. You feel when you interview her, there's a kind of um, vulnerability at the core of it all. I think possibly that very difficult upbringing left slightly more scars than you think. She's very, finds it difficult to trust people. Uh, she has suffered quite some abuse over the years, as many women in politics have. How, how would you think this has affected her, Andrew? Oh, I'm, I'm sure, talk, you know, talking about those vulnerabilities, they are very real. And the wonderful thing about Angela is that if you gain her trust, if you gain her friendship, she is ultra loyal to you and will support you through thick and thin. But Beyond that shell, she is incredibly uh, vulnerable. She does get easily hurt and, you know, she comes across as a tough nut, but it has taken a lot out on her. And you've only got to look at the social media right now. She posts something about improving workers' uh, rights in her current role as uh, Shadow Secretary for the Future of Work and the torrent of abusive comments that, that then uh, follow on Facebook and on, on Twitter is unrelenting. Now, she is made of strong stuff. She, you know, largely ignores that, but it can't not have an impact on, on her. And, and, you know, as Gabby has said, it's not just Angela, it's predominantly women uh, politicians face a, a torrent of abuse. And, you know, that is a really difficult thing for uh, female colleagues of mine to have to endure. And Stephen, how would you describe her politics? She was seen as on the left of the party under Jeremy Corbyn. 
Has this changed at all since she's become prominent under Keir Starmer? Well, I, I guess I would place her in the middle of the Labour Party, right? If you have Corbyn at one end and Tony Blair at the other. I think the, the central change, though, has been the, under Keir Starmer, as the, the Labour Party's kind of internal conflicts have continued, but have sort of primarily been about, you know, rule changes, how they respond to the EHRC, how they respond to the ongoing rows about that. Although I don't think her politics have changed, I think her position in the Labour Party's internal debates has moved slightly in the, you now for a variety of reasons have a situation where the left of the party is represented by the campaign group is mainly on the outside of the front bench and you have the centre and the right of the Labour Party on the inside. And I think therefore by staying in, she is seen as being more of the centre of the party than she perhaps was under Corbyn. Not so much because her politics have changed, but simply because of the internal vicissitudes of, of Labour Party politics. And she's very good at making her politics personal in a way. And in attacking the government recently, she referred to having given her son money as he couldn't afford his self-isolation from the hospitality industry otherwise. She has this certain ability that others, potentially the leader of the Labour Party, uh, doesn't, which is relatability, right, Gabby? Yeah, I think so. She makes things personal and she's not shy of talking about her personal life. And she also sounds as if she has a kind of normal, recognisable life to a lot of people. I mean, you know, like you say, her son was furloughed in the early stages of the pandemic because he was working in hospitality, he was struggling financially. You know, she can talk about all that very authentically and very comfortably. And that's something that, you know, if Labour could get the relationship between the leader and the deputy leader right, because there are some tensions there that we'll come on to discuss, I mean, you could, in theory, have the best of both worlds. You could bring together, you know, Mr. North London lawyer, and she always calls herself a gobby northern lass, you know, and you, you bring together two parts of the, of the sort of Labour base under one roof and each speaks to parts that the other um, can't reach. And that could be an enormous strength for the Labour Party, but it does rely on being able to get the two of them working together harmoniously. And it's easy to forget that she was only elected to Parliament in 2015 for the Greater Manchester seat of Ashton under Lyne. And within a year, she was Shadow Education Secretary under Jeremy Corbyn. Um, but when Corbyn resigned, she didn't go for the top job. She ran for deputy leader instead and endorsed her friend and flatmate, Rebecca Long-Bailey. Andrew, looking back now to things, how things have gone, do you think she might regret not having gone for it herself? I'm not sure she regrets it because, look, she, she's she got a future in the Labour Party and uh, she's one of the, the top teams. So, But, I mean, I, I always think that the mistake was that Angela didn't run rather than Rebecca because I think, and we've already touched on it, the beauty of, uh, of brand Angela is that she transcends party divides. She is of the left, uh, you know, very much the soft left, but she is of the left. Um, but she's somebody that both the Blairites and the old right of the Labour Party trust. She is a proud defender of many of the achievements of the Labour governments of 97 to 2010. But, you know, she is very firmly rooted in the left of British politics. So I think that had she decided to run for leader, not only do I think she may have won, I certainly think that the Labour Party could have finally removed the problem that that haunts us, that we've never had a, a female leader. So whether Angela regrets it, I don't know. But I think there's some in the Labour Party that think there was a missed opportunity there. And Stephen, do you agree that she could have been somebody who could have united a divided party between right and left? 
Um, no, I mean, for two reasons. One, Keir Starmer was ahead in every single year. Remember the first sort of poll they did of the Labour membership? Yeah, before the 2019 election, even bluntly, he had. And yeah, there's an interesting argument about whether or not Keir deliberately played a blinder to win the Labour leadership election or got lucky. Um, but Keir Starmer himself was incredibly well placed in that contest. And I think that she... Um, was very wise to uh, stay out of it. I think actually, um, if we were having this conversation in five years' time, we'd probably be saying, you know, uh, wasn't Angela Rayner lucky, A, not to have uh, run and lost in a leadership election that Keir Starmer was very well placed in, but B, not to have had to lead the Labour Party through what I think is going to be a very difficult time. And that's even before you get into stuff like, you know, how they deal with Brexit, you know, do they have a hostile or a or a friendly relationship with the Liberal Democrats and Greens and all of that difficult stuff is why the Labour Party is divided. And that it goes way beyond, you know, whoever uh, occupies that rather unpleasant office in Norman Shore South. Andrew, do you think Angela would have been doing a better job at this point than Keir's been doing? Well, I don't know whether it would be a better job. I think, as we've already discussed, that um, it's an incredibly difficult time to be leader of the opposition. It's a thankless job at any time. And there is a period of rebuilding, and that is going to be a very difficult period, I fear, for uh, the Labour Party, who, whoever uh, would be leader. So, uh, But Angela has strengths, and you know we've touched on those as well. She is a great communicator that connects with real people and particularly some of the people that are hard to reach that we have to engage with um both people who instinctively should be labor and aren't in the so-called red wall seats but also um people that want a bit of authenticity um that are fed up with politics being a bit robotic and recently there was this extraordinary reshuffle after the Hartlepool uh, by-election and the tensions between Angela Rayner and Keir Starmer's team were quite noticeable then. She moved at that point from um, party chair and national campaigns coordinator to shadow cabinet office minister and she remains the deputy party leader. Um, Stephen, how much do you think Keir Starmer needs her in the role and what do you make of the relationship between them? Well, so the central reason why... Keir Starmer needs her is that as deputy leader, she sits on the party's NEC by right. And she has been you know, a vital part of his NEC majority you know, on, on every controversial sort of intra-Labour beef. She has uh, delivered for him on the NEC. And so while, yeah, there, there's a lot of difficulty interpersonally between those two offices, um, the weird thing about all this, right, is if you're Keir Starmer, right, there is no path to a successful Keir Starmer leadership that doesn't run through Angela Rayner also having quite a good Keir Starmer leadership. The flip side of that, of course, if you're Angela Rayner, it's difficult to see how um, you can uh, emerge as the next leader if the Keir Starmer project is an unalloyed failure. So they are sort of um, they are dependent on each other. I'll be at a time when you know their yeah the relationships between their teams are not good. Um, but yeah, they are you know despite the fact that possibly neither of the people involved in it see it this way. It is actually, in lots of ways, a joint enterprise. Gabby, what, what did you make of that particular uh, particular episode between the uh, between Keir, Keir Starmer and Angela Rayner? The trouble with it was, was that it looked as if she was being blamed for Labour losing Hartlepool because, you know, she's party chairman. He decides to move her straight after this 
by-election defeat. And it, it obviously wasn't, you know, whatever you think of Angela Rayner's performance as, as party chair, there was obviously an awful lot more going on in that by-election. You, to pin it all on Angela Rayner looked cowardly. And while the leader's office would say we weren't attempting to pin it all on Angela Rayner, the trouble is by reshuffling straight after the by-election, that's exactly what it looked like they were doing. The bad thing for them was that she emerged if anything stronger, with this whole, you know, list of extra titles. I mean, if I was to list Angela's, all of Angela's titles now would take up half this podcast, you know, but suffice it to say that she's in charge of all sorts of bits of the empire and bits of the empire that leave, you know, room for further confusion. She's Secretary of State for the Future of Work. You know, it, it, it feels sort of unresolved, the position between them. But all we know is that she came out stronger with people saying, why don't you run for leader? And every time he falters, you get this thing of, well, you know, maybe call for Angela and that's not I mean if you think about the relationships between Labour leaders and their deputies in the past where it's worked best is where you know is where the leader knows that the deputy's got their back and that they have no ambitions in that direction I mean Starmer doesn't know that with Angela Rayner and I think so long as he's in an insecure position and constantly looking over his shoulder for where she is you know that's going to be a difficult relationship. And Andrew, what do you think it tells us about Angela, the way that she did sort of turn the situation around um, when it looked like she was about to get demoted, that she seemed to come out stronger out of, out of that episode? Well, I think the overall message is don't mess with Angela because I've not known many scraps that have uh, happened uh, that Angela has been involved with in that she hasn't come out on top. And, um, you know, she is very sure-footed. She knows what levers to, to pull to get the results she wants. And the point is that Angela was very clear that she felt that she hadn't had a front-facing role, being party chair and national campaign coordinator, important roles though they are, are kind of inwards looking. I think what she wanted to get out of the reshuffle, she certainly got out of the reshuffle, and that was that she had not just a string of titles, but also uh, that she finally had a front-facing role, as she did when she was Jeremy Corbyn's shadow education secretary, which she performed excellently in, was often used for media performances on a whole range of issues she's now got that role again and I think for her that was really important. And Stephen what do you think she'll make of that role um, the policy role over the next few years? It's so dependent on what the government does right because at the moment the reason why that role is such a meaty one is that Michael Gove her main shadow essentially is Boris Johnson's sort of mobility assistance prime minister right he doesn't do or like doing large chunks of what we regard as the usual part of that job and so Michael Gove has to do it for him and that means that if you are in that role you have a huge opportunity to showcase your skills as someone who's good at scrutinizing government opposing government embarrassing the government and one way or the other at the end of this you'd feel them we'd be able to answer the question of would she be good at being leader of the opposition pretty conclusively one way or the other but let's imagine for a moment that Michael Gove gets reshuffled out of there and it ends up going someone in the Lords or, you know, that we have a different prime minister and the role therefore shrinks. You can easily see how she might actually end up in a bit of a sort of no man's land, as sometimes that role has been in the past. So it is really all dependent. As with almost everything in politics, actually, the big question is what happens with that relationship between Boris Johnson, Michael Gove and how, how that project gets on. Because if something about that goes wrong, then we probably won't be talking about her in, as a candidate for leadership next time around. Let's move on to our final questions then, which Stephen has partly answered there, which is, 
will she ever be the first female leader of the Labour Party? And as a second element to that, would Boris Johnson or his successor be scared of her as an opponent? I mean, I certainly think whoever is Angela's opponent ought to be very clear that uh, Angela will always pick a fight and always seek to win. So absolutely, whoever Angela is facing ought to be very afraid. Will she be the Labour Party's first female leader? I don't know. I mean, look, I hope uh, and pray that we have a Labour government in 2023 or 2024, which means that Keir Starmer will be the Labour Prime Minister and he could be Labour Prime Minister in those circumstances for a very long time. There's a lot of luck involved in politics and it may well be that the uh, the baton to be Labour's first female leader will go to a different generation. If Keir doesn't succeed in uh, the next general election, then clearly there may well be an opening for uh, a leadership contest, in which case I'm almost certain that Angela would run. And I think she would be in a very good position to be Labour's first uh, female leader, unless the loss of the uh, the Keir leadership could also be pinned on Angela as deputy leader. So as Stephen said earlier, there is a lot that's at stake, actually, for Angela uh, and Keir to work to win uh, the next general election. uh, And that's what I'll be supporting as well. I've lost count of the number of times everyone in the Labour Party has gone, no, we really, really do need to have a woman leader and then voted for the nearest available man. So I'm sort of, I would like to think there will be a female leader of the Labour Party sort of in my lifetime. That doesn't seem too much to hope for. But I don't know whether it will be Angela. It all depends when and in what circumstances it falls vacant, what's the Labour Party looking for at that point? Is it looking for a change of ideological direction? Is it looking for a different personality? What's it looking for at that point? And that depends whether Angela fits the bill or not. Yeah, I think it, Andrew's exactly right about so much of this is about luck, right? Because the really destructive thing about Keir's reshuffle was it was destructive for him and destructive for her, right? Which is, and broadly, they are both two politicians from the middle of the Labour Party who, when you listen to them talk, they broadly have the same diagnosis about what has gone wrong and what they need to what they need to fix. And that means I think it is difficult if this leadership is a sort of unmitigated failure for an Angela Rayner leadership to come after it. If this leadership is kind of a partial success or, you know, kind of a success where people go, well, the political positioning was right, but the candidate was wrong, then she starts in an incredibly powerful position. But so much of that is not within her control. I think you can easily see how either she runs next time and carries all before her, or she ends up in the zone we've seen of so many um, potential party leaders of all stripes, which is kind of ending up being no one's candidate because, you know, the left has a candidate of its own, the centre has a candidate of its own or has been discredited by the failure of Starmerism and the right has a candidate of its own. So, yeah, it does all come down to luck and how the Starmer project does. Thanks, everyone. Thanks to Andrew, Stephen and Gabby. We'll leave it there for now. And that's all from us this week. Make sure to look out for next week's episode as I look at the impact First Minister of Wales Mark Drakeford has had on Welsh and Labour politics. But for now, I want to thank all my guests, Andrew Gwynn, Stephen Bush and Gabby Hintzliff. The producers are Yolene Goffin and Danielle Stevens, and I'm Rowena Mason. I hope you're enjoying your summers and thanks for listening.
For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.